Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey, listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. And today's conversation is really powerful, and I'm so glad that you're joining us today. My guests are Dr. Colleen Kraft and Dr. Elise Falucco. Dr. Falucco is a child and adolescent psychiatrist in Jacksonville, Florida, who is nationally recognized for training pediatricians to integrate mental health into pediatric care. Dr. Falucco completed her internship in pediatrics and psychiatry at the Massachusetts General McLean Hospitals in Boston, and her residency and fellowship in general and child and adolescent psychiatry at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. She founded and directs the Center for Collaborative Care, where she leads experiential workshops in primary psychiatry. Dr. Falucco has received funding from SAMHSA, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and local foundations to develop and study models to improve integration of mental health in primary care and has been recognized for her work with multiple awards, including being named a Distinguished Fellow by the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. In November of 2022, she will be joining the faculty at Eastern Virginia Medical School Children's Hospital of the King's Daughters, where she will be piloting a new longitudinal program to train pediatric residents to meet the needs of the many children and adolescents affected by the National Child Mental Health Crisis. Dr. Colleen Kraft is a returning guest to the podcast. She is the Senior Medical Director for Clinical Adoption at Cognoa, a digital medical device company designing products to address the unmet developmental and behavioral health needs for children. Dr. Kraft served as the 2018 President of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Her background includes work in primary care pediatrics, pediatric education, and healthcare financing. Dr. Kraft received her undergraduate degree at Virginia Tech and her MD from Virginia Commonwealth University and her MBA from the University of Cincinnati. She completed her residency in pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. Through her work, Dr. Kraft's goals are to promote the optimal physical, developmental, and psychosocial health of all children, and to support those adults and professionals who care for children. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Kraft and Dr. Falucco. Hey, Colleen. Hey, Elise. Good morning. Good morning. For those who are out there in the listening world, we're on practically opposite coasts with Elise being in Florida and Colleen being in California. So welcome, welcome. Well, we're going to hop right in because we have a lot to cover. This is a really big and I think really interesting and maybe a bit novel for a lot of pediatricians and pediatric clinicians. So we're going to just start with a quick, you know, how did you get to this? So Elise, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into child psychiatry? 
Sure. Thank you, Leah. And thanks for inviting me. And thanks so much to Colleen also for coming and sharing your story. And I'm just really excited to have this conversation. So as far as how I got into child psychiatry, I've always loved kids. I was a swim coach growing up and a babysitter. And I really thought I was going to, I went into medical school thinking I was going to go into pediatrics. And I started applying to residency and was in my fourth year of med school And when I decided to do an elective rotation in outpatient child psych, thinking that it would make me a better pediatrician. And I was completely wooed um, by my patients and the families that I got to work with. And one girl in particular was this teenage girl who came in with symptoms of depression. And I spent probably 40 minutes, you know, sitting next to her, sitting across from her on a couch, listening to her story and to hear her, you know, vulnerably share about how devastating it had been to be a teenager going through high school and to experience these symptoms, you know, one of which is incredibly impaired low self-esteem to the point that you think about ending your life. And I remember just being captivated by her story, captivated by the family, and just really appreciated the opportunity to have the time to listen to these stories and to get into this level of depth with families. And at that moment, I said, I want to do this. I want to help. I want to meet families where they are. And I did get to see this girl back at the end of the rotation, luckily, and she had been pretty responsive to treatment and just looked so different. It was like a before and after makeover, a really good success story. And so I think that really motivated me to try to work with kids and families to identify and treat symptoms of mental health problems so that they could get back on track. And then I think throughout all of my training, I remained really, I think I still am really tied to pediatrics. You know, I'm a child psychiatrist, but I love working with pediatricians. And so the way that my journey has shaped me is that I've realized that I want, you know, I'm committed to working with pediatricians to help them navigate these tricky situations, but with the additional challenges of juggling and incredibly busy pediatric practice where they don't have 40 minutes to sit down and listen to every single detail of the story and hear about that level of complexity, but where they can have the skills to be able to really identify what's going on and how they can help in a practical way. Because a lot of these kids, as you know, have limited access to specialized mental health care. Well, I love several things that you said. One is I love the partnership with pediatrics and we love child psychiatrists too. So it's it's a love fest. <laughs> and, you know, you talk about the luxury of time. And I think for those of us that are interested in mental health in the primary care sector, even if we set up that time for us, a lot of the issues are about the constraints and our views and payments. So, you know, I think that's a place for advocacy. So we're going to flip it. And Colleen, first of all, has had an amazing journey, you know, even in being the president of the AAP, which is huge. So Colleen, where did you start before you got into pediatrics? What was what was the hook for you? So the hook for me was this program that started in the 1960s called Head Start. I was in a family that qualified for it, and I was actually in the very first year of Head Start in 1965. And I had several younger brothers and sisters, and I used to, quote, read to them all the time. And and it turned out I was an early decoder and an early reader. And when my Head Start teacher saw that I could read, she said, you are so smart. You should be a doctor when you grow up. And I thought, okay. 
But there we go. <laughs> we, we got it there. But all of my life, it really, when you take care of patients, there are things that have to feed you. And it's always fed me has been children. And just how funny and how wonderful and how precious and how innocent they are. And that even when you're having a bad day, one of your patients will say something that will just totally crack you up and there you go. So I've been a pediatrician for 34 years. And when I started in practice, it was all about ear infections and asthma and infectious disease. And we didn't have things like the Hib vaccine or the pneumococcal vaccine yet. But as these things came about, we saw less infectious disease and more mental health. And as early as 2000, I had quite a, a subset of my practice that I was treating for anxiety, depression, and ADHD, and learned really with the help of one very dear child psychiatry friend of mine, Dr. Bela Sood, who's in Richmond, Virginia. We formed that partnership early on, taught other physicians, and really had a very thriving partnership in taking care of kids with, with mental health concerns, helping to really open up that access for all of these kids. Yeah. Again, another fabulous story of that connection to child psychiatry. Mine's kind of similar, and I think you and I are in the, about the same place, Colleen, um, in terms of practice history, because I remember the HIB too, and I remember when CAT scans came, be, became a thing. I mean, right. I mean, it's like the car, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I remember that early partnership with a psychiatrist who, you know, gave me her cell phone number and, you know, we just started <laughs> exactly. talking and it was one person that was a connector for me. So today we're going to talk about, I think, a, a topic that maybe a lot of us don't think about, but does have just a huge implication for kids and young adults. But it may be an area that we just don't really know very much about, and that's schizophrenia and psychosis. And, you know, maybe there's some early signs that we should know about, you know, because as things progress, maybe there might be interventions that we could start earlier than when it just is full blown. But Colleen, as we start this conversation, maybe you could share your son's story and, and why does this topic matter so much to you? Well, thank you so much. So as I was working with kids with behavioral health disorders and really setting the pathway for partnership with psychiatrists and be able to do that at a greater level so that any pediatrician could have that access, I never thought that I would have a child with serious mental illness. And my son, who had some ADHD and a little bit of mood stuff growing up, was really on the right path. He was living in New York City. He was a real estate agent. I have a great picture of him shaking hands with Michael Bloomberg. He was really adventurous and living his life and traveled all over the world. And in 2018, was hospitalized with his first psychotic break. And over the next four years, he was in, out, in with psychiatrists, private and community health, and eventually in a clinical trial at UCLA, and was eventually diagnosed with schizophrenia. It took two years after his psychotic break before he even got that diagnosis. And what I could see is somebody who was really struggling, but somebody who really tried to stay on the medications, really tried to be engaged in therapy. In a clinical trial, he saw a psychiatrist weekly had therapists twice a week, did exercise, had neurocognitive training, and he marginally improved, but he still had psychosis. And ultimately, 
he didn't get better. I could see this really vibrant kid get to the point where he was just so confused and so anxious that it took him hours to take a shower or to make something to eat. He hated the medications. The medications made him lethargic and really actually contributed to some of this anxiety rumination that he had going on there. And every now and then he would go off. And for about a two-week period of time, Tim was back. He would be drawing. He would be interactive. He would go out with his friends. He would play pool. And then he started with psychosis again. And this cycle went on for a good six to eight months. And one night, it was too much for him. Or he had a psychotic thought. Well, we don't know. But he ended his life with a firearm. And as a parent, you feel like one of the greatest failures in your life is losing one of your children, especially for an illness where he did everything he could. We did everything we could. The system did everything we could. And it still didn't work. He's still gone. And it has really made me think about this because when we think about psychosis and bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, we bring our biases to this. We bring the, well, if they only stayed on their medicine, if they only stayed with their therapy. And, you know, I look out on Hollywood Boulevard at the Mona Lisa's and Matt Hatter's there with much more compassion because I know their story and I know that maybe they tried. And maybe we just don't have the treatments for these kids. As a parent, I have days where I'm really okay. And then to quote a singer that I really like, Aaliyah Diane, when her loving child went, her heart hung heavy as a loose from a bee. Mm-hmm. And that's where we are because we don't really have what we need to treat our kids yet. Well, I want to first of all, thank you for sharing that story. I mean, I can't think of anything more painful than the loss of a child. And especially when you've done everything and he did everything. And and I, I think that was really important what you said about that bias that we assume that the failure is the failure of the patient, you know, that they're not compliant. And yet he was. And it's almost like a, a cancer that we have no treatment for, except it's coupled with this horrible stigma that makes it shameful in some way. And Absolutely. And as Elise will tell you, there are some people that do really well with the therapies that we have. And I don't want to discount that because it's important for the people who do well with it, but it's it's not everybody. We know that about a third of people with schizophrenia are treatment resistant. And you know, if we had a third of cancer patients who are treatment resistant, we would be camping out on NIH's doorstep demanding new and better treatment. Well, on that note, I mean, what's the what's the incidence? I mean, is this something that's a, a big enough problem that we really need to think about, you know, where we put our research dollars? Schizophrenia affects 0.8 to 1% of our entire population. Really common. And I'm happy to get Elise's perspective on this as well, too. Um, how often do you see this? How do you see medications working? If somebody presents before that really difficult transitional stage between childhood and adulthood, what can you do for them? How can we know what those early symptoms are? Oh, I mean, excellent question. I think, um, I think you know, we look for, with every single illness, we talk about the importance of early intervention. And this is why we're doing this podcast to help and support other pediatricians to think about, you know, how do you know that there are early signs? And back in 2018, was there anything that we could have seen, you know, in Tim's life to know? And every story is different, but for other kids and young adults who 
eventually go on to develop schizophrenia, they have this very classic, or many of them have a classic prodrome, like a, a prolonged period where they may not have psychotic symptoms at all, um, but they, you know, they begin to stop kind of caring about their appearance. They get really tired. Their sleep gets disruptive. They develop apathy. Some of them even stop bathing. Um, and, and it's really interesting when you hear of those symptoms, you know, what other mental health illness or what other, well, like, what else do you think of with, like, let's say a teenager came to your office and the mom says, look, he hasn't showered for days. He's staying in his room. He's tired, but I don't know if he's sleeping at night and he seems withdrawn. Like the first thing you're going to think of is not necessarily psychosis. I mean, I would be thinking depression. Right. I had a patient like that. Yeah. Right. And, you know, common things being common and depression now affecting just a very sad, extraordinary amount of children and teens, you would be thinking depression. And so that looks like depression, but I think one of the key take-home points, you know, from our talk and our podcast is that also could be a prodrome for a more severe psychotic disorder. I mean, this could also be drug use. This could also be a lot of things, but I think you're not thinking psychosis when you're seeing those symptoms. And yet that's part of the prodrome um, mm-hmm. and that mass kind of masquerades as depression. Well, right. and I'm wondering too about, you know, I mean, I'm thinking in my career, have I seen any kids that may have gone on? And, and I can think of a few where the presentation was just different, you know, more severe, mm-hmm. um, unusual kinds of depression. But of course, Sometimes we lose that longitudinal, you know, what happened down the way. So I don't always know what happens after they turn 21. But I'm also thinking on the flip side of these, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old who is, you know, seeing things or has a, what we think is a make-believe friend. How do we tell the difference about what's kind of a normal developmental thing that in a teenager would be psychotic? How do you know? Right. So, I mean, we have just like thinking about things from a developmental perspective. So by age three or four, most kids, if they are developmentally typical, can distinguish between reality and fantasy. And certainly by the time you're a six-year-old, kids are are able to tell you, is this pretend or is this real? And so if they have an imaginary friend, they would be able to articulate, yes, she was telling me about her imaginary friend when she was little. It's the weirdest story. It's like a snail with bunny ears. I don't know where she came up with it. (laughs) We were talking about it last night and she said, mom, I knew it was imaginary. You know, I just wanted a buddy and somebody to, you know, play games with. And so it's, it can be normal at these ages to have imaginary friends and to say that you're like seeing your friend or maybe having a make-believe conversation with your friend. But if you ask the child, the child will be able to say, certainly by age six, if they're developmentally typical, no, this is my imaginary friend. Like, I would like you to pull out a chair at the dinner table for her, though, please, (laughs) because this is part of, you know, my development and my play. But so you want to consider, obviously, your age, you know, when you're getting beyond age six or seven and you're having firm beliefs that you really are hearing something or seeing something that other people aren't experiencing, become more concerned. You want to consider the context also. A lot of, I'm sure in your practice, you've heard kids A lot of times kids with behavior problems will get in trouble and we'll be talking with them and they'll explain. They're like, well, I punched Buddy because, you know, I the devil on my shoulder told me to. Or I heard a voice that said to throw a pencil at my teacher. 
I was like, oh, okay. You know, what, have you ever heard that voice other times? Like, yeah, sometimes when I get in trouble. Okay. Like, is it, you know, is there any pattern or any context to this? And, you know, if this only happens right before they get in trouble at school, this seems like that would not be typical for a psychotic experience. You know, if you're the most common psychotic symptoms in children and adolescents would be auditory hallucinations. So hearing voices, you know, so then you always want to find out when are you hearing the voices? What are the voices saying? And do you recognize the voice? And sometimes the more elaborate, detailed stories that you get, like the little boy who's like, yes, there's a devil on my right shoulder who wears an orange hat and tells me to throw pencils at the teacher. Like that isn't necessarily what we would consider a typical psychotic experience, but is more falls into these what we call PLEs or psychotic-like experiences. So these are things that the child is experiencing or could be experiencing, like, you know, late at night when they're trying to fall asleep and they think they hear a sound or they think they hear someone calling their name. And you ask them, have you ever heard any other things? And, you know, looked around and nobody's there. Do you hear that during the day? No, never. Do you hear it when you're sleeping in your sister's room? Nope. <laughs> or mom's room? Nope. Only when I'm in my room, in my bed, late at night. And so when you hear like context specific or when you hear that there's symptoms of auditory hallucinations or psychosis that only occur in a very specific given context, that's much more suspicious for atypical or non like psychotic like experiences. Kids who have really true psychotic symptoms, the way we see them present often is their parents will bring them in because they'll be found talking to themselves um, and there's no one else in the room. And so that's one of the most common presentations. And it's very interesting because they may very often be defensive about the fact that they're hearing voices. And so if you ask them, you know, have you ever heard something heard a voice or heard someone speaking and you look around and nobody's there, you know, does that ever happen to you? Oftentimes there'll be a really, really long pause before they disclose that information because there is this, you know, there can be a paranoia that comes with auditory hallucinations and psychosis. And so there's this feeling that I can't share this. This has to be kept secret, which again, makes it harder to detect. And then if you have somebody who's very high functioning and intelligent, like Tim, you know, it does mm -hmm. make me wonder how much work you have to put in to try to keep these things secret. And that in some ways that makes it harder to detect and to know what's going on because you have this natural defensiveness that's a part of the illness itself. Colleen, and thinking about your son and listening to Elise describe, you know, this sort of development, does any of that sound familiar, ring true? I mean, when did you first wonder if something was wrong. So listening to Elise, the places where I can identify things happening much earlier than 2018 was um, 2015, my mother died. And Tim and my mother were close. And he would tell me that he would have these times at night where his body was in paralysis and she would just come and just then lie over top of them. And it was kind of scary. But then he would go away and he would feel better. He also had a couple of, of incidences where he was very afraid of people or of things. And sadly, in 2015, he actually experienced some head trauma. He was uh, cooking in a restaurant. It was robbed and he was hit over the head with a baseball bat. And so we actually 
looked at that head trauma as probably the cause for the things going on in Drew here. And maybe it was, and maybe that was the start of some of his delusions and, and paranoia. But it really only got worse over the next several years. I do think he held it in. I mean, he moved from New York City back to Richmond, Virginia, lived with his brother, my other son, and did a lot of painting, did some work, but but really over those few years became less functional than he had been in 2015. Well, when we're thinking about, you know, this presentation, I mean, what you describe is for many of us that we're thinking depression. I'm imagining as a parent, Colleen, you're thinking, you know, my son's depressed and, Mm -hmm. you know, not even considering psychosis. So when we're thinking about, you know, assessing or evaluating a patient, what questions should we be thinking about asking Elise just to maybe even try and elicit what might be psychotic symptoms? Right. So, you know, again, keeping in mind that you're fighting against two opposing factors. So one side saying, look, if you don't ask, you won't find out any information. A lot of times we don't even think to ask if people are hearing voices or have ideas of reference, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But then you've got the other opposing force of this sense of shame and, you know, that comes with mental health problems. And then also potentially some paranoia and a feeling of secrecy the teenager or doesn't want to disclose or talk about what's going on. So I really like to try to normalize a lot of symptoms um, in part because uh, I'm trying to address some of the stigma and shame that I know my patients feel when they're going through this. And so I'll say, you know what, sometimes sometimes people have unusual experiences where they'll hear somebody talking or hear voices talking and then they look around and nobody's there. Has that ever happened to you? And then if they say yes, dig a little bit deeper about what do you hear the voices saying? Do you recognize them? And then probably most important in a pediatric setting, you know, if you do have someone who's saying they're hearing voices, is to assess for whether they're the voices are commanding them to do something because that's the biggest safety risk. And so you really do have to ask, you know, had the voices told you to do anything? Had the voices ever told you to try to hurt yourself or end your life to assess for that? And then, you know, the other question has to do with control. Like, can you ignore the voices? And this is a really, to me, this is almost like the question that can help you decide between true psychosis and not true psychosis or what we call psychotic-like experiences. So kids who are truly experiencing psychotic symptoms will want to like put their hands in their ears. They're like trying to make the voices go away. They often wear headphones and which again could be developmentally typical, like a teenager walking around wearing the Dr. Dre Beats headphones, you know, that could look normal. But what you find out is that you know, hey, tell me about your headphones. And as you get to know them, it's like, you know, it helps. I like listen to music constantly so that the voices won't bother me. Um, and so kids with true psychosis are really bothered by the voices, whereas the kids who are having other um, experiences will be like, mm, it's kind of interesting, you know, or it's a little scary, but it only happens a little bit and goes away. Like I can ignore the voice. But when you get to the point where if the voices, you feel like the voice is controlling you, that is where you really, you know, begin to get concerned. And then, of course, we're going to just find out about frequency. You know, like you'd ask about pain or any other symptom, like how often is this happening? When's the last time this has happened? And that should give you a better picture of, you know, is this something that sounds like true psychosis with, 
you know, if it's causing them distress and causing impairment, like they're not showering, they're not going to school, their grades are slipping, or is it something like, you know, sort of an atypical psychotic-like experience of every once in a while when I'm stressed, I feel like I hear a voice and then it goes away. You know, that's, which is a different entity. Must be a terrifying experience. I mean, if you're holding your hands over your head because the voices are so scary, I mean, does that resonate? Colin, well, actually, with Tim, your son? Tim had headphones in 24-7 during mm. the last four years of his life. And we could tell that there were times where he was so anxious and so stressed. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it was hard for him to reach out and relate to us, but we, we knew that. And there are things you could do, some with medicine, some with talking, some with interacting. He got so that, that he would start to exercise. We, we have an elliptical and that would be one of the ways that he would help out with some of the stress. But but the earphones were in all the time. Mm-hmm. Wow. Because mm-hmm. it's real. I think, you know, as humans, when we hear about um, different different mental health problems, like we try to imagine in our heads, if we haven't experienced it, we try to imagine like, what would that be like? And it's, it's so hard. And I remember going to a conference mm-hmm. once and they had headphones with like the soundtrack of voices. And they were like, put these, wow. this, wow. this yeah. it is just like you're listening to, you know, a track of people talking and you can kind of understand some and you don't understand. And no wonder you're having trouble concentrating and paying attention, having conversation. There's something going on. You know, you're getting sensory input into your brain constantly. It's, um, you know, to Colleen's earlier point, which is really well taken about how, you know, I think sometimes we can, it's really easy to be judgmental about people and say like, oh, well, they didn't do well. You know, those, those patients who suffered from schizophrenia, they just wouldn't take their meds, you know, which is a, another topic in and of itself. Yeah. And I think you underestimate how difficult it is living with this illness. And even, you know, we're coming at it as people who all don't have that extra challenge and, my goodness, it's hard enough for us to take our meds every day or to want to. I mean, <laughs> yeah. No, and, and Tim was on a long acting injectable antipsychotic when he was still doing this. Wow. So, I mean, he was on kind of the state of the art treatment and still had psychosis. And it was, you just can't imagine. What was really interesting about his art with what you're saying that just resonates with me, he had faces in all of his art. Mm-hmm. You could see in everything little faces, and he, he painted hundreds of paintings. Um, I actually have them on my my Instagram profile, which is docmom3460, but I've got them up there and you can see the faces and everything. And I really always thought that it was a reflection of what was going on in his brain and -hmm. what he was hearing and what he was seeing and really putting that out there. And if you think about this historically, think about Van Gogh, think about Edvard Munch, think about Louis Wayne. So many of our artists that had really, really interesting types of things that were quite notable all had schizophrenia yeah i know that's that kind of intersect between you know this incredible creativity and yet this incredible pain and how do you you know i i know and and this isn't my own personal experience but you hear about folks that the medication blunts that and so they don't want to take medication. You know, I think about musicians and poets and writers because it, it gets in the way of that. And yet what what they're experiencing is also getting in the way of other things. So I can see where that might 
affect why somebody would or wouldn't take medication, plus the side effects, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, weight gain and, you know, type two diabetes and weird movement disorders. I mean, you know, how would any of us feel about that? So interestingly, you know, that Tim's death has really changed a path for, for myself and my two other children. My daughter, who was really thinking about medical school, right now is doing research on some of the basic science of schizophrenia and about some of the muscarinic receptors and some of the glutamate receptors and, and, and really trying to delve deep into, quote, the enemy. You know, how do we find out more about what the brain does with this and the communications there? And, you know, I give her a lot of credit for that. She, she was really motivated to change this at the most basic level. Well, and it really does sound like this is, I don't know, somehow feels different than depression and not to say that depression isn't also, you know, a neurologic, chemically based neurobiologic. I mean, I don't know that we really understand it fully, but this just feels like brain on fire. I mean, are there any thoughts, Elise, about sort of the the cause? Oh, I mean, this is the million dollar, more than million dollar question. I guess we've had inflation since it was a million dollars. <laughs> it's a lot. I need to catch up. You know, so much money and so many studies are going to try to figure out like what is the causative or putative mechanism that causes schizophrenia. And we all want a single answer. And what we know, there's a lot of heterogeneity in terms of like what genes cause schizophrenia. Like if we could just isolate it to one gene or one gene fragment, like then we could target that. But no, there's so many different pathways that can lead to schizophrenia and that complicate it. And our mainstay of treatment, you know, uh, atypical neuroleptics or what are commonly called antipsychotics, they target the dopamine pathway. And, you know, I think we kind of stumbled upon this treatment. It's one of like like other advances in medicine. You know, it was a little bit fortuitous. We noticed that patients who were (laughs) um, taking D2 blockers, dopamine receptor antagonists, you know, had fewer symptoms of psychosis. And then the flip side that sometimes dopamine agonists can produce symptoms of hallucinations. And so we're right now, we have a bunch of, how do we say this, like variations on a theme, right? So we have mostly antipsychotics or D2 blockers. Some, you know, a lot of the newer ones also have 5-HT2A receptor blockade. So like serotonin blockade, um, but we have a thousand different names and colors and flavors of pretty much the same D2 blocker to treat as medication to treat psychosis, some of which are more effective than others. And in the patients that I've treated mainly in the adult population, Colleen mentioned that about a third of people are treatment resistant. You know, there are two thirds ranging who, you know, range from like, we can reduce their symptoms of psychosis to a level where they're they're honestly still there. They still do hear the voices and they still do feel paranoid at times or, you know, walk around and think, oh my gosh, these strangers, you know, who are on the street around me, they are all talking about me or they all think negative things about me. But because we're able to strike a balance so that they are able to recognize, yes, I hear these voices and yes, I think that these people are talking about me but I have to remind myself that's not true. So like somehow their prefrontal cortex in their brain is able to override this. And we think that the medicines are playing a role in that. You know, there are some very, very lucky, I don't know if lucky is the right word, but a subset of people who do experience almost, you know, complete remission of symptoms on medications. But there's 
obviously a lot of work that still needs to be done. And we're looking in, the field is looking into, you know, similar to what Colleen's daughter is doing, is looking into different mechanisms of action involving glutamate, involving glycine, involving GABA, Mm -hmm. even thinking about transcranial magnetic stimulation. And we're trying to think more broadly um, because we don't know the mechanism of action. We think that there are a lot of things that lead to this final common pathway. And so it's complex. I was thinking about like the description of sort of, you know, there's different flavors of response. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of like, autism spectrum disorders. I mean, why are there some kids that are, you know, kind of quirky and incredibly brilliant and have a few things that are, you know, different socially? And then on the other hand, there's these patients that are nonverbal and dramatically affected. And so trying to understand what's the basis between these totally opposite spectrums of these disorders. And I was just at a conference and they were talking about rapid um, whole genome sequencing. And is there is there something that's being done in, in looking at that to see if there are some identifying genetic things? I mean, what I would say is I think there are right now what we know is that there are multiple different genetic mutations or polymorphisms that we know of that can result in psychotic symptoms. So I'm thinking like 22Q11 and mm-hmm. but. What we also know is that not every person who presents with symptoms of schizophrenia has these mutations. And so we really want it to be clear cut and it would make everybody's life easier. But right now we don't have a single one hit factor. It's really very multifactorial and gene environment interactions. And we don't know is the short answer. And is it is it familial? If you have a family member, I'm thinking the answer is yes, but are there some statistics about that? Yes. So, I mean, it's definitely, it can be hereditary or it can be, you know, travel in families. And again, it's not like Mendelian genetics where you you can say, oh, well, my mom has schizophrenia and therefore I have it or I have a 50% chance of it. You know, when we take a genetic history Clinically, what we're looking for is, is there a history of any severe mental health problem? So it could be severe bipolar, it could be schizophrenia, it could be um, a history of death by suicide. And we don't really know, you know, very often we don't really know what happens to our grandparents' generation or to uncle so-and-so. But if you have multiple people on the family tree with severe mental health problems, and then you have a child presenting with psychotic symptoms, you're much, much more concerned about that child than if you have a child with the exact same symptoms and a family that tells you up and down, you know, we got a little bit of anxiety and a little bit of low-grade depression here, but nothing else. Right. And I'm wondering about, you know, when you said bipolar disorder, because that can present with psychosis too. So I can see where making the distinction and getting the right diagnosis. I mean, Colleen, you said it took your son two years. Right. So, you know, what, what do you think was the delay in that? I think that... When you have the psychosis, you have a history of head trauma. Um, we do have a family history. My aunt and her son both had schizophrenia. But I, I think there's a stigma to it. I mean, people are afraid to call it schizophrenia. And it reminds me of 20 years ago when we first started diagnosing more kids with autism. We were afraid to do that. We were afraid to tell our parents about that because it was kind of like a death sentence. And parents thought they did something to cause it and that there wasn't anything you could do about it. Mm -hmm. But we know now that early intervention 
even at the point of that 12-month-old who isn't pointing to something, who isn't getting joint attention, you might it might not be autism, but you know that that's not right. Mm-hmm. That's one of those symptoms where we've got to intervene early, get them into early intervention. Let's start working with speech and language and behavior. And autism is now something that is people understand that there are things you can do for it and that there's going to be some gifts and there's going to be some challenges with these kids that are going to be different than kids who don't have autism. But it's not, it's not that death sentence anymore. We could say this is going to be a different path for you, but these are some of the things that we can do and we can intervene early. And I really am, am looking and hoping that both our pediatric colleagues and our adult medicine and psychiatric colleagues can take that analogy and look at some of those early symptoms. And maybe with research and better treatments, we can figure out what do we do early on with these folks so that we can actually make a difference in the way their brain is is currently wiring. Yeah. I, although I would have to say, I think still telling a patient, I see some red flags and I'm concerned there might be something like autism is still a hard, Very hard. thing to deliver. Absolutely it, It's hard. still... Mm-hmm. So, and I can only imagine saying, you know, I'm concerned that, you know, there might be something like schizophrenia. I mean, how terrifying is a a parent um, for all the reasons that you've given, Colleen? And again, the stigma is is a big part of that, you know? How many times you turn on TV and you hear about the psychotic killer or the, you know, the schizophrenic who's a criminal? And and I, I think that's part of the language that we as healthcare providers need to just kind of say, okay, no, this is not a thing, that this is brains and we're not really understanding everything that goes on with the brain, but understand that, that this is a category of symptoms that we see with your child and with your loved one. These are the therapies we have now. Let's figure out what we can do to really support you and your family and your child. Well, and, you know, I guess I'm wondering when you're talking about you know, again, the stigma is that, you know, we think that these people are a huge danger if you have schizophrenia and probably the biggest danger is to themselves, mm-hmm. right? I would wonder about the incidence of suicide in in folks with schizophrenia versus those that, you know, are homicidal. So if you have schizophrenia, you have a four to five time increased risk of suicide, of dying by suicide. And The people who die by suicide are generally young. They tend to be male. They tend to be people who were very high functioning before they got sick. Mm -hmm. They tend to be unmarried and they tend to be white. And Tim checked all of those boxes, every one of them. So if he was at a higher risk, that was one of the things I kind of wish I'd known when he was diagnosed. Hmm. Um, Now, we talked about suicide all the time, he and I. And he always said, Mom, I will never do that. And which makes me really, really wonder what happened and really thinking that it was a psychotic moment. And, and that's when he died. Mm. Any thoughts on sort of the suicide, homicide kind of maybe myths that are out there, Elise? Um, like, yeah, I, I want to comment on the suicide part first. I think, you know, when people think about risk for suicide, again, the first thing that comes to free association to your mind is the word depression. You're like, okay, well, there are people who are depressed or suicidal. And but you have to remember that if you have classic unipolar depression without psychotic features, you know, if it 
we're talking about somebody who's not hearing voices or doesn't have delusions, their mood is really low to the point that they're thinking of ending their life, but they still, you know, are aware of the difference between reality and whatever their brain is telling them is the reality. Whereas somebody with schizophrenia, you know, perhaps part of the increased risk for death by suicide is mediated by the fact that they are truly, you know, just like you're putting the headphones on and listening to voices in your ears, you are truly experiencing in your brain a voice that is commanding you to do something over and over and over again, and you are suffering and you cannot make that voice stop. I heard, Colleen, you said something earlier, very, very true and very vulnerable about the feeling of failure as a parent. And I wonder if there's some like internalized stigma even there, because as Leah was saying, you know, metastatic cancer or some other illness mm-hmm. that affects a different body system. Of course, as parents, we're always going to think, what could I have done differently? And, you know, is there anything I could have done to stop and control this? But this truly is, I mean, it's like a tra- a high-speed train without brakes. And, you know, there it sounded like, you know, that was what Tim was experiencing. And you know, there's only so much we can do. You know, it's it's really interesting. I was, he, he drove, he was driving, pulled off to the side of the road and, and died by suicide. And when I went to look in his car after it had been impounded, I looked in the car and he had packed things very neatly. He had 12 of his paintings. He had like snacks in the front seat and a Gatorade, like he was going on a road trip. And everything looked like he was off to, to go somewhere. He has a cousin we love who lives in, in Seattle. And, and I thought maybe he was going up to see him. And then something, something hit him. That voice, that psychotic thought. And he pulled off the road and, and died. And, you know, I'll never know. There was no note. There was nothing else. And it really looked like he was on his way to a road trip. So it, it's, it, it is really, it, we don't really know about these things and they're all things that that I think with research and with some effort we'll begin to to find out and understand and maybe even help to stop the internalization of guilt and failure mm-hmm. for those of us who have children who die by suicide, whether it's from schizophrenia or from any other reason. Colleen, I'm I'm wondering, I mean it sounds like part of a coping for you may be this advocacy you know, push for research and, of course, supporting your daughter in this journey for her. But are there parent support groups? I mean, this is a huge, a huge weight. How, how, you know, what helps you get through the day? There have been some really great resources that I have found. Um, there are a couple of podcasts that are out there. There's uh, a um, counselor by the name of David Kessler who has a, a site called grief.com. And on there, he has a suicide support series. And along with that, a little bit of cognitive behavioral thinking, because with suicide, you think about, well, what if I had been there? What if I had done this differently? And he really invites you to take your what ifs and turn them into even ifs mm-hmm. because it happened and, and really understand the interaction between guilt and grief and your own past experiences and trauma and what was going on with illness and really helps to bring some of those feelings that you don't want to share into a place where you can actually cognitively address them. And and that's a wonderful, wonderful resource. 
he has an online support group as well, too. It's uh, called Tender Hearts, where there are a lot of people who have lost loved ones for many different reasons. And, and you are taught how to listen reflectively and understand where they're coming from and invite them to think a little bit differently. And I do that with myself all the time. I find that really helpful. Well, I'm really grateful for you sharing this. I, I know, I mean, I think in my own earlier in uh, the month of September, my sister shared her story mm-hmm. about her suicide attempt. And, you know, I'm thinking back when all that happened. I mean, there was so much that had I not answered that one phone call that she made, was that the one? Was that the moment that I might have made a difference? And And she reassures me that, mm-hmm. you know, I had nothing to do with that. But you know, here 19 years later, and I still ask myself that. It's really interesting because when you listen to people who have interviewed folks who have attempted suicide and, and didn't die by suicide, the, the theme is, is that nobody wanted to die. They just wanted to end the pain. Or it was a moment that they were not in control of. Really to Elise's point that this is not something that people decide to do. It is something where their mind just tricks them into doing something that they wouldn't do if they were thinking uh, logically about it. Yeah. Well, Elise, do you do you have any just parting thoughts that you want to leave us with? Yeah, I think maybe some clinical pearls or things, you know, kind of bringing it back to pediatric practice and what can we learn from Colleen's story? What can we learn from this discussion to help our future patients or our current patients? And I think Maybe the first thing is when you're evaluating a team with mood changes, low energy, don't forget to ask about psychosis and ideally, you know, normalize it, ask about it in a way that doesn't contribute to more stigma and shame. And the second thought, I think this just generalizes to all mental health symptoms, but keep in mind that, you know, something I think we all know, but just as a good reminder that, you know, when kids are going through, kids and teens are experiencing anxiety, depression, psychotic symptoms, it is incredibly distressing. And they themselves feel like something is very wrong with them. And so they're coming from a place like, I'm bad, I'm there's something wrong with me, and I'm embarrassed and ashamed about it. And so try to be extra gentle and kind um, with these people and do what you can to try to normalize things and offer hope when you can and remember that it is this is hard. And then, um, which is something you guys, again, as pediatricians, you're some of the superstars in terms of being able to communicate with kids of all ages and all developmental levels and families. So that's probably a tip you don't even need to hear because you already do it. And then probably two last thoughts. One is that you know, always remember to ask about a family history of serious mental health problems and know that that confers genetic loading and increased risk for kids um, who have multiple people in their family with things like bipolar or suicide, schizophrenia, or a history of psychiatric hospitalization. And probably, you know, a final thought is that, you know, we've talked about, you know, the focus of this discussion has been about schizophrenia. Um, and psychosis related to schizophrenia. But definitely we see psychosis in a lot other situations like depression with psychotic features and bipolar. Very sadly, we very recently have taken care of kids who have experienced psychotic symptoms related to COVID. And so, you know, there are multiple other medical conditions that can present with psychotic symptoms, you know, under the overarching umbrella of delirium. And so this is out there. 
but always don't be afraid to ask. And remember, it's hard for kids to tell. Well, the other thing is, I think if pediatricians get really good at doing sort of mild to moderate, maybe even moderate to difficult cases of mental health, um, you know, anxiety, depression, ADHD, then we can free up our psychiatric colleagues to see these really difficult cases that are so difficult. I mean, I'm not going to be comfortable probably ever prescribing lithium or some of the really complex atypicals, certainly with not without some support. So I think those states and almost all have them now, the child psychiatry access programs, this is a great opportunity to call our colleagues and say, hey, this is what's going on. What else do I need to ask? And then, of course, can you see them, please? <laughs> so I, I guess I want to give the the final space to Colleen just is there anything else? And, and I'm so grateful for you sharing this. I just feel for you so much and so appreciate you. Um, anything else that you want to leave leave us with? I, I think as pediatricians to be thinking about what's the joint attention of, of psychosis? You know, we, we all are very much focused on that 12-month visit and that that child not pointing, responding to their name. We know that this is something atypical in terms of receptive language or even um, autism development. Where do we find that and how do we know that? And how can we ask about it and again, normalize this when it comes to our teenagers? Very much what Elise is saying, how do you figure out some of those kids that really are going to need more of that intensive type of treatment? And then finally, really, really thinking about stigma, even within our own biases on these, even within in our own patients and understanding that it's not always just compliance, that this is a disease that we still have a lot to learn about. And just quoting Elton John, until you've seen this trash can dream come true, you stand at the edge while people went run you through. But I thank the Lord that there are people out there like you. So thank you, Leah. Thank you, Elise. Oh, well, thank you, Colleen. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, just so much to say. I am so captivated by the, the picture that you shared Elise, about putting on these earphones and hearing what they hear. I mean, that to me is that true opportunity for empathy to hear what someone else is hearing. You know, you don't know what someone else's experience is. And then if you did, you think about metastatic cancer. I mean, we, you know, we don't feel like if only as a parent, you know, somehow this is my fault. Although, I don't know, mothers could probably come up with some reason why it's their fault. But we just don't know. We're doing everything we possibly can. We've tried all the things. And even so, sometimes it goes wrong. And so, some grace for those who who couldn't bear it anymore. Mm -hmm. And for the families that are left. And so, my heart goes out to you. Pauline, I wish we could give you a hug over the Zoom. Well. This is as close to a Zoom hug as, as we'll get, and I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you both, um, and I'm so grateful that all of our paths have crossed. And to those who are listening, that you know, you just sort of open your mind to possibilities, questions, asking, and and really thinking about our own stigma because we can only move forward if we challenge ourselves. So, thanks to you both, and you guys have a good rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. This was such an incredibly powerful and raw conversation, and I am so grateful to Dr. Kraft for really sharing this story. 
It's so vulnerable and honest and important. And Dr. Faluka really adds to the richness of the conversation with the perspective of child psychiatrist. My takeaways today are many because there are just so many details. So get out your pen or pencil and a pad of paper because there's just lots to say. Number one, again, thank you to both Dr. Faluco and Dr. Kraft for sharing this story and the insights. Number two, recognizing and diagnosing schizophrenia can take years, valuable lost time. Number three, schizophrenia affects 0.8 to 1% of the population or roughly 2 million adults. Number four, medications, even when they are effective, carry lots of side effects. And that's attributable mostly to the atypicals, but also lithium would fall into that category. Number five, even doing all the things, a third of those with schizophrenia are treatment resistant. There's often lots of finger pointing. If only they were taking their medications, doing their therapy. And yet for some, they're doing all those things, and yet they're not having a good response. Number six, Colleen's son was treated for mental health in middle school and by his mid-20s, a classic time for onset or at least recognition of onset of schizophrenia. He was on medication, undergoing intensive and regular therapy, and was even enrolled in a clinical trial. And still he struggled. Number seven, while childhood onset of schizophrenia and psychosis is rare, prodromal symptoms might be seen in adolescence. Number eight, These symptoms could include fatigue, sleep difficulties, apathy, not bathing, all would look like depression and could be. Number nine, according to the DSM-5, a schizophrenia diagnosis requires the following. At least two of five main symptoms. Those symptoms are delusions, hallucinations, disorganized or incoherent speaking, disorganized or unusual movements, and negative symptoms duration of symptoms and effect. The key symptoms you have must last for at least one month. The condition's effects, whether or not they meet the full criteria for the symptoms, must also last for at least six months. And herein lies sometimes a delay to diagnosis. Social or occupational dysfunction. This means the condition disrupts either your ability to work or your relationships, friendly, romantic, professional, or otherwise. Number 10. Auditory hallucinations are the most common feature of schizophrenia. They are often commanding and can be relentless. Dr. Faluco shared the headphone simulation. And if you can imagine having headphones that had voices blaring and screaming or repeating horrific things, they would be terrifying and exhausting. Number 11, psychotic-like episodes are often context-specific. For example, they only may see things in the bedroom when they fall asleep and can readily describe, whereas true psychosis is often kept secret. A patient may be seen talking to themselves and may become paranoid or defensive. Number 12, kids know the difference between real versus fantasy at a young age. So an imaginary friend at five can be developmentally normal, and the child knows it is imaginary. Number 13, loss of function follows as symptoms progress. Number 14, we underestimate how hard it is to live with the disease and that despite state-of-the-art treatment, the psychosis may remain. Dr. Kraft talked about the faces in her son's artwork 
that perhaps are a reflection of what was going on in his brain. Number 15. Current treatment is fairly limited to atypical dopamine blockers and 5-H2 blockers. Different flavors of the same thing is something Dr. Faluco said. Whereas the disease has a spectrum of severity and response to treatment. Two-thirds of patients have a reduction of symptoms, but again, one-third are resistant to treatment. Number 16, there is a genetic predisposition, not an identifiable specific cause, but taking a family history of serious mental illness of all kinds and suicide is crucial. Number 17, the risk of suicide is increased by four to five times with a diagnosis of schizophrenia with highest risk in young, single, previously high-functioning white males. Dr. Kraft said this was her son. Number 18. Stigma is an enormous barrier to diagnosis and treatment. Many are afraid to make a diagnosis. Those with the disease are often viewed as non-compliant. In other words, their treatment failure is their own fault, and the family may not be able to share what is going on because of stigma. Consider the diagnosis of cancer. It's frightening, but there's lots of compassion about the diagnosis versus the diagnosis of a serious mental condition, which we often shy away from talking about. For example, a stage four cancer with metastatic disease is not the patient's fault, but rather the fault of the disease. Perhaps we have to reframe mental illness in this context. Number 19, Dr. Faluco's Clinical Pearls. For any teen with mood changes, ask about psychotic symptoms. Ask about family history of serious mental illness. Mental health looks like distress that something is wrong with me. Normalize the asking. Some people sometimes hear voices or see things that aren't there. Has that ever happened to you? Hope is important. Psychosis can be seen with unipolar depression, bipolar depression and mania, delirium due to infection, head injury, prescription medication, drugs, brain tumor, or inflammatory conditions. Consider the breadth of the differential diagnosis. And finally, number 20, Dr. Kraft offers the following. Recognize and consider the possibility of psychosis. Ask about suicidal thoughts in patients diagnosed with schizophrenia. For the family, seek support and I've listed several of those um, links in the show notes. And lastly, be kind and supportive to the patient and the family. Again, I want to thank both of the speakers and particularly to Dr. Kraft for being so vulnerable in this conversation, but I know that she really wants her story to be told and for other patients and families to be seen and heard and for help to be offered. Thank you for listening. As always, I so appreciate you tuning in week after week and hope that these topics resonate with you. I'm always interested in your feedback and you can DM me at Pediatric Meltdown on Instagram. You can find me at Leah Gugino on Twitter and you can go to my website, www.medicalbhs.com and get more information. Please take care of yourselves, and I look forward to you joining me next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.
Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much and I hope you will join me next week.